You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I don't think I've ever felt anything like it. One minute I was outside in the world, and the next I was a living part of E2, waving mindlessly through the glass at a sea of faces while Gyro pulled the hatch shut. It's hard to describe. I'd been through that portal countless times over the course of the past five months. It was our worksite, after all. And I knew the smells, sounds, and configuration of E2 as well as I knew the suburban house I'd grown up in. But this was different. I suppose I'd be lying to myself if I said the ceremony didn't have something to do with it, the band playing, cameras flashing, people cheering. And it wasn't that so much as the hatch clanking shut and the lever locking in place that made the emotion overwhelm me till the tears started up in my eyes. Tears of joy, yes. Tears of relief. But of something else, too. Anxiety, I guess you'd have to call it. Or maybe uncertainty. Maybe that would be more accurate. This really was a new world. And now I was in it, and there was no going back. T.C. Boyle is the author of many books worth reading, from World's End to Drop City to The Inner Circle, Talk Talk, A Friend of the Earth, The Women, Wild Child, When the Killing's Done, San Miguel, Stories Too, and The Harder They Come. His new novel is The Terranauts. Thank you for joining me, T.C. My pleasure as always, Rick. This stems from an actual experiment, the Biosphere 2, which had quite a story itself. I remember when they brought that out in the 1990s. Were you studying it at the time? Yes. uh, Many people listening will remember this. The Biosphere 2 experiment was a private experiment uh, funded by a friendly billionaire, sort of like what Elon Musk is doing to take us to Mars today, uh, in the era 1991 through 1993. The plan was to create an artificial, self-replicating environment, a biosphere like the one we live in. It was called Biosphere 2 to distinguish it from this one. In a a 3.15-acre plot in the Arizona desert, 3,800 species of plants and animals were enclosed, along with four volunteers who were very much aping the astronauts of the period. Um, I have called them, in my fictional account, Terranauts. They strove as a kind of group to be selected as as one of the final eights, as as with the uh, astronauts. Uh, there were 16 candidates. Eight were to make it. I have chosen to create three narrators in this book, three first-person narrators, which I've never done before. Each one talks to you directly, and of course they're prejudicial and they contradict each other and so on. Uh, the first is Dawn Chapman, who is a very attractive a woman in her late 20s, who is sort of the naive of the group. She is the least scientifically prepared, although she has a, her BS in, in, in a forestry and so on. Uh, she is in charge of the domestic animals. They must feed themselves entirely. They will be sealed in here for two full years. The second is Ramsey Rootthorpe, who is the communications officer of this project, Uh, And the third is Linda Ryu. She was one of the 16, but excluded, not chosen for the final eight, and is now working support staff with the promise of being uh, on the third mission. The original biosphere 
was intended to go for 100 years, 50 two-year closures. That is, absolute material closure, nothing in, nothing out, as if they were on Mars, or if our biosphere should collapse, this would provide a refuge. That is a frightening, frightening thought. Uh, and that's because I think what this book speaks well to is the intersection of science and humanity. We like to think that science examines something that's eternal and that science itself is something sort of eternal. It marches forward without any kind of interruption from the human things about being human. <laughs> that proves to rarely be the case, however. Humanity uh, seems to insert itself uh, into every aspect of science, and this is has been known for a while. I, one of my favorite uh, philosophers is a man named Charles Fort, who back in the, I think around 1910 or 1920, he was collecting what he called the, the Book of the Damned. These were stories of things that science said couldn't possibly have happened, but were reported by reliable people as having happened. Rains of frogs, you know, rains of red brains, all this stuff that science said, you can't have that happen. He just wrote it down and said, this is what people are telling us is happening. And he came to the conclusion that science has its fashions, just like everything else in the world. And it wears those fashions and changes them periodically. I think this book is uh, science in the middle of a fashion change. <laughs> I love it, Rick. I hadn't really thought in those terms, but you are absolutely right, because NASA has never given up on the idea of creating another biosphere that can be self-replicating, that is, produces its own food and oxygen and so on, like the one we're living in. Um, many of the listeners will know that NASA has just concluded a one-year closure in the Mauna Loa crater as of this August. Six men and women, they were allowed to leave their enclosure, and it was not anything like the chutzpah of biosphere, too. But nonetheless, when they left, they had to wear spacesuits because they were trying to simulate what it might be like in an alien environment. And of course, they chose this volcanic crater because there's nothing there but rock, no, nothing green. Uh, they could be anywhere. That's like Mars, where there's nothing to be revealed but humanity itself. Uh, the real experiment being performed happens on two levels in this book. In one, at one level... Um, it's what happens when you put uh, just a few people in a small space and say, stay there for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's one kind of science experiment. The other kind of science experiment I suggest is happening uh, is T.C. Boyle, the scientist, experimenting like any scientist in a pristine environment. Scientist has its Petri dish in agar. T.C. Boyle has an empty word file. <laughs> Yeah, you're absolutely right, Rick. You know, we've we've talked over the years many times about many books, and you're um, so insightful with regard to what I'm doing. But of course, when I begin a project, I don't know what I'm doing. It is an experiment to find out what's going to happen. And so, with this book, as with many of my others, I like to have oh maybe three months of, ex of of taking notes and reading everything. I read the Biospherian's own accounts. I went to Biosphere Two, which anybody can visit as a tourist. Uh, it is no longer uh, sealed, of course. The whole experiment went to hell six months into the second closure because 
the friendly billionaire. And as we see in society, billionaires can be a little erratic. Um, <laughs> uh, had a fight with the creator of this thing, and that was the end of the biosphere, which, by the way, made it great for me because then I could take the real history of the real biosphere, the 3,800 species, and what happened in the first closure, and then project a second and beyond closure uh, with completely fictional characters. I think that in that sense, this is a a wonderful piece of science fiction, not in the sense that we normally think about it, where you're projecting into the future and examining what effect these inventions of the future will have on society, but rather looking back at the past and seeing how science unfolded in the past not so well. <laughs> In this yeah, book, I yeah. thought that was one of the most fun parts of this book is how quickly the science sank into, literally, into the mud. Well, of course, <laughs> as everyone listening will know, we are now living in the science fiction movies of the 1970s. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Uh, the acceleration of uh, of technology is staggering. And I write about this often. For instance, today is Halloween Day. And it, on this very day, The New Yorker is bringing out my new story in the November 7th issue called Are We Not Men? And this is about my latest obsession, uh, CRISPR-Cas9 genetic engineering, so that we can quite easily now make transgenic creatures. And I'm wondering, is this a good idea? <laughs> Read the story and you'll find <laughs> out. Um, at any rate, um, when I begin a project like this, I've done the research I didn't talk to any of the original biospherians. I'm not interested in that. I'm going to create a kind of imaginative journey of my own, and I don't want to be held down by who the actual people might have been, but the actual facts are fascinating. So in this biosphere, you would think they would choose one biome. They did take material for their uh, rainforest from uh, the Everglades. Okay, great. Why didn't they simply have the single biome of the Everglades, which had evolved through the millennia to be that biome. But no, with tremendous chutzpah, John Allen, who was the creator of this, decided that we would have five biomes to represent the major biomes of the earth. So you get a rainforest, you get an ocean, which was a saltwater, a huge saltwater pool with fishes and, and so on. You would get a savanna, you would get a desert, um, and you would get a marsh. And it was a kind of mix-and-match world. Again, Rick, as an ecologist, I would think you would take one biome that has already evolved and live in it. Sure, put a, put, a, put a dome over it and say, this ain't going nowhere, neither are we. Right, and then see what happens. Again, they were criticized, the biospherians, and of course I'm using this in my fiction too, for not, they're not practicing real science. Real science comes up with a theory. And then you experiment to see if the theory is correct or not. They are kind of doing something that is very theatrical. <laughs> they are saying, all right, hey, kids, let's put on a show. And the show is we're going to enclose eight ecologists uh, in an artificial environment and see what happens. And, you know, it's such a shame that it's not continuing now. This would have been... The 25 years show ago. Yeah, yeah. Ever. It, that's what people are saying. It's like a reality TV show, but it precedes reality TV. And and really, it had elements of that. Uh, a lot of what they did was was recorded on film and, and uh, 
photographed. Uh, the newspapers and magazines were abuzz with it and gossip about it and everything else. And, of course, the attraction was for all the paying tourists to put their noses to the glass, like in, right in this studio where we are. There is the glass. There's our engineer, you know, and watch these people trying to survive. And the irony here is that it's real hard to create an environment like the one we live in now. Essentially, they became subsistence farmers. The men lost uh, 18% of their body weight, the women 10%. Jenny Craig should have, should have opened a biosphere because just to survive, they were burning far more calories than they were able to replace. And, well, when they go in, they say they are planning on subsisting on a diet of 1,500 calories a day. That uh, it is the exact same amount of calories that they used to test uh, volunteers, uh, conscientious objectors during World War II, were tasked with saying, well, what's going to happen when America gets all these people out of these horrible camps? We'll starve some people and starve these con wow. conscientious uh, uh, volunteers and see what happens to them. What they fed those people was 1,500 calories a day. So they were on what uh, during World War II were thought to be a concentration camp. Uh, oh, I love hearing this, Rick. I didn't know that fact. should have told me before I wrote the book. I would have included that for sure. Wow. You know, it's hard for me to say... I've I've been skinny all my life. I have the metabolism of a weasel. You know, I have to eat my body weight every day just to keep going. Um, so I don't really, I've never really worried much about calories. Uh, that is fascinating. Uh, again, uh, you know, probably a third of the world is starving as we sit here talking about it. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that they are not getting enough calories and they're expending more energy than they're taking in just to try to stay alive. And that is what happened in this experiment where it cost $150 million in 1990 to build this place. It costs over a million dollars a year for electricity to keep the fans going and the pumps that circulated the water and so on and so on. So these people, like the astronauts themselves, were, were a kind of uh, uh, elect living in here. And yet it's so great. All they did was try to stay alive uh, and get enough to eat. And all they did was obsess about food. And by the way... Um, People tried to tempt them. Uh, a lot of people couldn't believe that they would actually stay in and maybe at night they'd sneak out to McDonald's or something. And in fact, somebody did put a big pepperoni pizza outside the airlock one night just to see if they would look around, open it quickly and eat the pizza. It's kind of like a mouse trap. Yeah, but they didn't. They didn't. Um, uh, I love these characters. And one of the things we... Uh, realize as we're reading this, even though this is presented as it's very expensive, they're pouring a lot of into this thing, but the the amount of science any of these people have is is not a lot. But what they're really being judged on, of course, is how attractive they are. <laughs> this is a really fun detail, the kind of the how they all have to like are comparing themselves to one another, not surprisingly, especially the women. Mm -hmm. Yes, of course. And Again, as a novelist, this is ideal for me because I'm taking the actual history and then interpolating and creating new characters. And yes, it's very important how they look, just as it's important how the astronauts looked to the public. You're presenting an image. It is theatrical. And in my telling, 
the creator, whom they call God the Creator, GC, GC. Jeremiah Reed, right. was in theater, just as, as um, John Allen, the creator of the Biosphere, had been in theater in Broadway. Uh, it was a, an important part of, of bonding his crew. It's a kind of cult that's created here by GC and, and Jeremiah Reed. Uh, and part of it is they had to work together for a year and sometimes two years before closure to bond as a crew. So they had a research vessel in the Caribbean. This is the real history and also my fictional. I'm taking the, the real facts uh, where they would do uh, oceanic research and so on and live together in close quarters and haul cables and so on. They had a ranch in the Australian outback and the uh, the Teradots had to go there and, and, and work together. And the creator insisted on them performing plays. And so that's why three times throughout my telling in this book, they put on plays inside. And at the same time, it's photographed, uh, televised into Mission Control, where the Mission Control uh, uh, Terranauts for the next crew will also put on the same play. You know, that idea of putting on a play in the middle of an some kind of exploration, it's not new. There's a, a, a lovely book by Dan Simmons called The Terror, which uh, discusses, recreates the last voyage of uh, the Terror, which was tried to make the North Atlantic crossing, didn't. But What in, year, Rick? Uh, this been approximately. 1860s or 70s uh-huh. or something like that. Yeah. And... What happened to them, they were going across it, and so they were so bored. They also put on plays, and there's a, a fabulous scene where they put on uh, uh, the fall of the House of Usher. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> on a uh, ship called the Terror? On uh, a ship called the Terror that's, that's like stuck in the middle of this ice flow. <laughs> oh, so this uh, idea of using entertainment as a way to break up The concentration expedition. camps, uh, the prisoner of war camps, they would put on plays and so on just for morale. And, you know, there is a whole literature of closure. It's not simply uh, what NASA has done or what uh, the original Biospherians did. It's also uh, studying the people who go, the scientists who go to the Antarctic for six months when it's black dark, you know, mm-hmm. and they're thrust together. And the aberrant behavior that can derive from this. Which brings me to this, Rick. I would like to read the two epigraphs to this book. So I don't know what what the book will be or where it's going to go, but I have to have some signposts. So before the book began, I had the title, The Terranauts. I knew there would be four sections, pre-closure, when they're all fighting to get in, closure year one, closure year two, and re-entry. But I also had these two epigraphs, and they stand in opposition, and they speak to just what we're talking about in terms of um, uh, interhuman relations in a stressful environment. So the first is from Margaret Mead, and it's this. Never doubt that a small group of committed, thoughtful people can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. The second epigraph is from Jean-Paul Sartre's play, No Exit. L'enfer, c'est les autres. Hell is other people. So these two things stand (laughs) as opposing propositions before I've even begun to write. And I I don't know what any book or story will be. It's the joy of writing fiction. I follow it and find out. So I have these propositions. I have a title. I have the real history. And 
Dawn Chapman begins talking to me. And when she's done, then Ramsey Rupthorpe begins talking to me. And when he's done, then Linda Ryu begins. And the three just keep circling back and back as the story expands through this um, signpost structure that I've hung out in the beginning. And that's how it is. There's no plot outline. There's no nothing. It just works. Day to day, the story emerges. This is... uh... I, what you just described to me is uh, bacteria bloom across agar. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I liked your initial uh, metaphor for this. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, one of the things I think that is so much fun in this book are, are these three different voices of these three different characters. Uh, let's talk about Linda first. <laughs> she seems, I think, uh, the, most, the most real, I guess, the most human. You know, coming into this project also, Rick, what fascinated me is to think about people who are in a cult or who are desperately competing for something they want. It consumes their whole lives. This is their identity. This is their life, as with the astronauts. So, too, with the biospherians. And so now I'm projecting with my fictional Terranauts. Um, What if you are rejected? And she is rejected. And so... Now that she's outside, we also get a view of what's happening outside at Mission Control, as well as the other two voices from inside. And they interact, of course, by telephone and at the the visitor's window and so on. So I was kind of fascinated with a character who would be so bitter in being rejected and yet having to play along and suck up to everybody because of the promise of being into the third mission. I I think she's... uh... Reading her, she's so much fun because she does constantly live on this knife edge of hating everybody, recognizing <laughs> just how shallow and vapid everybody is. She could just as well be shut of all these useless yo-yos and be somewhere else, except for the fact there's no place she could ever be want to be more. So this is like some exactly. the ultimate push-me-pull-you. And in the very first chapter, which presents Dawn's point of view, she and Linda are talking, and it's the day of the selection, and they're going to have the final interviews and don't know who's going to get in. And Dawn is the interesting thing about having I narrators is they speak intimately right to you. Mm-hmm. And Dawn says something like, um, Well, I don't know if I'm out of line here, but I really pray that Linda gets in. She's my best friend. But Stevie Van Dalk looks a lot better in a bikini. And I hate to say it, she's better looking than Linda, and I'm sure that's going to be a factor. And, of course, it was. I, I think that, uh, as with any book, uh, one of the it is really fun to see uh, the different characters have different takes, especially as things <clears throat> get more and more complicated. And I, one of the things I love about this is by distilling this down to what you would think would be just the bare bones, three care, three speakers, eight main characters, you know, trapped in this one place, things become incredibly personally complicated. Humans have, can just take any good situation, <laughs> like each other and hate each other and use those two emotions to completely screw any plans they made up. You know, I've been reflecting on this, Rick, uh, especially as I've been on, on a book tour here and fielding questions from the audience and so on. I am, I guess, not only obsessed with ecology and questions of, of uh, cosmology, ontogeny, why are we here? We're talking apes wearing clothes and we don't know the answers to anything, etc. I'm 
keep writing about such things. But I'm also writing about groups. I, I, I look back and I say, well, I'm always writing about a group that is trying to succeed in some way. And it's often in a way that is ecological. So, for instance, uh, in 2003, we talked about Drop City. I was and so I went back. This is kind I, of I, Drop City yeah. in many ways. I, I went back to the, the, the whole idea of that movement of the 60s, the hippies, to go back to the earth, uh, get off this rat wheel of, of, of capitalism that we're on. Can we live more simply? And so I projected a commune living in Sonoma that then went to the final frontier, Alaska, to see if they could live off the land. This is the same sort of situation, I realize, but now they're under glass, you know, because maybe there is no more land and there are no more frontiers. And maybe, in the worst case scenario, our biosphere collapses. And, you know, uh, I also wrote in 2000, uh, A Friend of the Earth, about Mm -hmm. ecotage and global warming. And truly, you know, I'm just a wise guy and I'm making jokes and trying to project things. The book projects to 2026 when everything has turned to merd, if you forgive me. Um, I should have made it 2016 because we're, the, we're here. Right? I'm living in Santa Barbara in the fifth year of a drought. You know, uh, one, words I will never forget uh, came from a gentleman named uh, Kim Stanley Robinson when he said, Rick, we're living in a bad science fiction novel. <laughs> Well, it's essentially what I'm saying at the very beginning of the show. We are living in the sci-fi of the 70s. Oh, yes. It's astonishing how quickly we adapt to the machines. And if you've noticed, our phones, uh, you know, our computers, our cars, our smart cars, everything else, the machines dominate us, and they're always increasingly complicated, and they're always broken. (laughs) <laughs> they never work up to spec. I mean, <laughs> I have had a cell phone for 15 years, and I don't ever think I've ever been confident that it could receive a phone call when I really, really needed it. That, that you know, it's not just sometimes the things just don't work. They don't ring. We have been sucked in and addicted to our machines, and I'm part of this, which is why um, I try to remind everyone that we shouldn't forget. Real reality. I mean, we got virtual reality, but real reality is still pretty good. I spend a lot of time, as you know, up in the Escoir National Forest. I rent a house up there for months and months every year. And up there, there is no cell phone reception. There is no internet. And there are very few people. And after three or four days up there, after work, I'm wandering the woods, you know, I begin to feel that Humanity really isn't so bad. (laughs) And I'm not frustrated by machines because I don't need them. Well, that's an interesting perception because your books are all about realizing exactly how bad humanity is. And also, too, I think that what the thing that science is most hesitant to understand and science that makes science unhappy is are is emotions which dictate so much of our actions and control us so fiercely even without our control even though you can be in the grip of an emotion saying oh i shouldn't be doing this oh i shouldn't be feeling this this is bad to be oh of course so (laughs) before we went on air we were talking about my 1987 novel um world's end Mm -hmm. and in that 
I was wondering if how far inheritance goes in our species. Mm -hmm. So you have your father's nose, maybe you have your mother's personality, even to a degree. But but what about um, um, behavior patterns? Is there really free will? Now, since I've written that book, of course, we have uh, uh, mapped out the human genome and uh, endocrinologists are telling us more and more that we don't really have free will, that everything we're doing is dictated in our organisms internally. So, uh, you know, I thought that I had invented sex, for instance, but I was wrong. It's just, we're just an animal species controlled by the need to reproduce, uh, uh, in order to do that, grab all the resources to ourselves, conquer our enemies, etc. cetera. Uh, yeah, we have free will, Rick. Right now, after the show, you and I could go out and get a gallon of gin, drink it, and then jump off the pier and, and die together. <laughs> and we might. But probably, given the way I'm feeling today, we probably won't. Uh, and yet, uh, everything we do seems almost pre-programmed. You know, in the moment, I can... I could take this microphone and eat it, you know? But really, I'm not going to because um, my stomach doesn't want to digest that. And all of the cells in my body and the bacteria that live in me and and uh, the hormones that are going through me at all times don't want me to do that. They want me to reproduce <laughs> and raise children just like the birds. The, the movie, The March of the Penguins, a few years ago... Mm-hmm. I thought it should have been rated triple X because <laughs> the horror of it, it's exactly what we are, this programmed behavior. And there it's, of course, such an extreme. You know, the males have to march around in the Antarctic standing on these eggs while the females are swimming. You know, wow, that's us. <laughs> well, one of the thrills of reading this book is going in the readers that might be tempted to think, Eight people, it's covered up. Nobody can go in. Nobody can come out. They're just going to be farming most of the time. What could happen? What could go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What could happen? What could go wrong? Well, A, there's plenty of science that could go wrong, and you... Uh, pull some of the real stuff out, the the stuff that grows on top of the dome and and the problems with the with the different biomes, which are make for quite engaging plot scenes. Of course, and again, I had the actual history of what happened, so that a lot of the crises that they are facing and so on, I am deriving from what actually happened in the biosphere too, and then you know, making my own changes on it and 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 bringing them up in order to see what they mean. So that, for instance, uh, they were spending in the biosphere, too, over a million dollars a year on electricity generated by a coal-fired electrical plant. Because back then, they didn't have... Yeah, I know. There are ironies upon ironies, you know. They didn't have uh, the kind of uh, solar panels we have today. Um, And it is true, as I tell in my fictional account, that at one point, a truck hit a telephone pole and the power plant was down for several hours. That means that within the biosphere, they would die. They would cook. Everything would, you know, it's a, it's a glass house in the middle of the Arizona desert. <laughs> Without weird. that electricity, Greenhouse, yeah. they would all die. Uh, and they were fortunately able to resolve that. But the whole question was, could they break closure in the case of dying? And in the actual biosphere, why I think a lot of people lost interest in it 
is because they did break closure. They broke closure within 12 days. Uh, one of the women uh, uh, severely cut the tip of her finger uh, off. And uh, one of the eight crew members is, of course, a physician. He sewed it back on. It wasn't looking too good. She held it up to the glass at the visitor's window, and the uh, hand surgeon from Pima County came and looked at it. He said, you've got to go to the hospital. You're going to lose that. Twelve days in, they broke closure, brought this woman to the hospital. She was only out for five hours. They estimated how many lungs full of our air she had acquired, and she went back in. But in the public imagination, and I suppose mine too, that kind of blew it. Because the magic of this, the hook, is that no matter what happens, they're on Mars. They can't leave. So in my telling of a fictional second and third closure, um, the Terranauts are determined that no matter what happens, death, they're not going to open that airlock. And so that gives it a lot of tension, I think. And it's also something to, for me to contemplate as the author of this. What does it mean? Well, I think one of the things that's uh, so engaging about this is while we're reading about these people uh, in this place and just how badly their humanity can screw things up inside and out, I, and in, very few readers will be able to not think, Holy Christ, I'm a terror not too. <laughs> and the, I'm not running this place. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we project larger uh, in a larger uh, scope to the biosphere we all live in. Yes. And uh, with our, all our beauty and our brains and our scientific theories and our religions, we still don't have any idea what it's all about. So, yes, of course. Uh, further, you have to realize that this is very elitist. All these millions of dollars mm. are going to support eight people. So if the biosphere should collapse or we have a Mars colony or whatever, what happens to the rest of us? You know, I guess we eat each other and die. <laughs> uh, well, uh, there's a... <laughs> In case you're ever feeling too optimistic, there's a, a lovely uh, collection of stories by, I think it's Brian W. Aldiss, uh, said in the colonies of Mars on the last days when they figured out that humanities, uh, the way humanity has evolved, we simply cannot live off-planet. Any, any attempt to leave the planet is doomed to extinction. Um, when NASA had their closure we were talking about earlier, so that would be a year ago, August, mm -hmm. Elizabeth Colbert, the wonderful environmental writer for The New Yorker, wrote an essay about it, uh, the, the closure and the attempt to have a Mars colony, and she pointed out that where we live now, this has evolved over the millennia to give rise to our species and all of the species uh, that produce oxygen and the trees and so on, and food crops and animals. It's very complex. So complex, it's pretty much impossible to replicate. So she is pointing out that instead of spending the money to have a Mars colony, we should think real hard about preserving the biosphere we're living in now. <laughs> well, so there is an environmental message to this, of course. And you see the multiple layers of irony here that that attracted me to this project to begin with. Well, too. But also, this gives you a lot of, a great chance to have fun with 
characters, plots, and voices. Because this is a, a hoot to read in the way you orchestrate these different people telling different events as things get worse and worse, as they get more and more tied up. Uh, did you find yourself having more and more fun? Did you think that as you approached, as you wrote this book out, did you feel it was closing off or opening up? All, all, all everything I write opens up at some point mm -hmm. because you know you begin a project, even a short story, not knowing what it will be. That's the joy of discovery. You know, I'm discovering what's happening as the reader is discovering it, uh, which is not to say that when I come to the end, that's it. I mean, I. I don't switch scenes around. It's structured. It's what I want. I can explain it. It's great. But I'm discovering it day by day. So, yes, it always opens up, uh, particularly around midpoint. Midpoint is the most difficult because you've begun with a burst of energy. You've taken your notes. You're excited. The characters are revealing themselves. But then you hit a wall because where's it going? What does it mean? Why am I writing this? What are the themes? Uh, and it's a very dark period, I think, in every story. Uh, you have to fight through it. Sometimes you don't, you can't get anything done on a particular day. You have to fight through it. So yes, of course it opens out. Uh, every story does. But then you see this little light at the end of the tunnel, which is the end of the story, and you're moving toward it. You don't know what it will be exactly, but day by day, slowly through accretion, you're moving toward it. And you, you know my work well. You know that my essay, This Monkey, comma, My Back, in which I, I, um, I liken this process to a kind of drug addiction and high. Because when you come to the end of a story, you work all day. You're in a dream. Uh, it's the most rewarding thing imaginable. It's like a drug rush. But as with a drug rush, it wears off. So as soon as it's done, you want to do it again as with being an addict to drugs. And I think this has helped me be so productive. I mean, this is, I just delivered my 27th book. Oh, I can't wait. Can you tell us a little bit about it? New, uh, 12 new stories, and it's called The Relive Box and Other Stories. Um, and one of them is the one that I adduced earlier in the program, uh, Are We Not Men, about uh, CRISPR-Cas9 technology projecting 20 years into the future. I'm, I'm just waiting for, I think that the book that will be the cause the greatest change in human society will be the uh, genetic engineering equivalent of the joy of cooking. <laughs> Somebody will write that we book. We already have it, Rick. This is what got me going on this particular topic. I subscribe to Nature and Science and the New England Journal of Medicine. And in the first two magazines, over the past year or more, uh, right in the front page is a huge ad that shows a boxing glove punching. And it says, knock out any gene. And they are selling home kits so that you can make transgenic strains of bacteria and yeast in your kitchen. That's happening now. Oh, Is this yay. a good idea? <laughs> you know? Uh, these people, I, I guess nobody has ever, we live in a world suffused with science fiction, horror, and movies. Uh, the people of which who love them and consume them, yet the characters of which and even the people of this world, it's like nobody has seen the Andromeda strain. No, nobody, it's like everybody in a vampire movie has never seen a vampire <laughs> movie. We're, I think we're it in becomes, a scientific equivalent. I know, it becomes rather repetitive though. And, and for a writer or a filmmaker, you want to take that trope 
and see what it means. Mm-hmm. So, by the way, in the story, which appears today, uh, Are We Not Men, I, your friendly writer-scientist, <laughs> have created two new transgenic species, the crow parrot and the dog cat. So the ad for the dog cat is this. On your TV, Paco Bell's cannon, and the announcer comes over and he says, dog person, cat person, it's all moot now. <laughs> and, and the fun of it, uh, of this story, is um, at the end, the narrator is talking about CRISPR technology and when it first evolved and the restrictions we tried to place on it and so on and so on. And then he mentions, oh, maybe eight creatures. And one is the crow parrot and the dog cat, which I've invented. The others sound equally preposterous, you know, like the rabbit that glows green under a black light, which we had 20 years ago before CRISPR, by the way, <laughs> uh, and, the, and the super cow and all of this and the micro pig. Those all already exist. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's, uh, I think, one of the... Um, interesting aspects of this book because even though it's set in the past, it feels like something that's crackpotty enough to that could take place right today. I mean, uh, I'm all for going to Mars. Uh, I, whether you know uh, the guy who makes electric cars is going to get us there is another question entirely. Well, for fun and because we're curious and we want to know, and we have shrunk our own Earth down to practically nothing. There are no adventures to have anymore. Everything's mapped. Uh, how wonderful, you know, <laughs> for for curiosity' sake alone. Except, well, everything's mapped except for what happens when you throw uh, eight people who sort of know each other in a room <laughs> and let them cook for a couple of years, which is exactly what you do. Even more fascinating to me, Rick, is the thought of what if there had been 10 friendly billionaires and they built 10 of these things within a mile of each other in the desert. The ecology of these places was kind of mix and match. Mm-hmm. They didn't, as we said at the outset, have a single biome. They wanted to create a new world. So they brought in creatures from all over the world that would never come into contact, just as we're doing with with invasive creatures everywhere we live. And um, imagine if there were a full 100-year closure of any of these biodomes. What if there were 10 of them? They would be entirely new worlds after 100 years because of accident and evolution amongst the creatures that were in there. For instance, in the actual biosphere 2, they included three species of cockroaches because they're essential. They're the tritivores. They're essential to the environment. But while they were building a thing, invasive creatures came in, like the cockroach that lives in your shower, if you're very unlucky. And that one took over and dominated. <laughs> they put in several species of ants, including the crazy ant. The crazy ant completely dominated everything and gobbled up every insect in the place. So give it a 100 years, and it would be an entirely alien world. And there could be 10 different ones. I mean, this, I think, is valid as an experiment. Not an experiment in true science where, again, as I said, you have a theory and you test it and see if it's true or not. But a kind of science by the fly. What if, you know? What if we put these people and these animals in here? What if we do have 52-year closures and leave it to see what will evolve? It's quite great, you know? I think what... uh you'd see a lot of uh, cockroach civilizations, (laughs) I think, what you'd see. Futurologists, uh, you know, of course, hold no hope for our species whatsoever. We'll we'll be gone soon. And they wonder what the next intelligent 
upright species will be. And many of them are uh, putting their money on the rat. So that during the, the Paris uh, uh, Environmental Conference of, of last, last fall, uh, or this spring, this spring, um, a number of us were asked to write letters to the future. And most people wrote, you know, dear citizens of the future, we're, you know, we've done this and that, and this is who we were. I wrote, dear rats of the future. <laughs> yeah, sorry about the mess we left for you. <laughs> I hope we tasted good. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, <laughs> it strikes me that one of the things that I like about this uh, book is that as a work of science fiction or you know or historical fiction what the level of technology isn't that different from ours but the technology they have is really important so i'd like you to talk about you know the level of making sure that you know your technology was right in there and that um also the technology within there was right within with in with relationship to what was going on outside. Yeah, again, I'm using the actual history, mm -hmm. but I'm fudging slightly. They didn't have cell phones yet, mm. and they communicated by walkie-talkie. Uh, and in the original biosphere, they had computers, and they did um, uh, often uh, communicate with the outside world. It was an educational project. I mean, many school children were, would, would talk to the Terranauts, and they'd see them on TV and so on. In my telling, though, I wanted more of a Big Brother aspect uh, in which the Terranauts are shut off, for the most part, from contact with the outside world, except when people come to the visitor's window and they can have, in one case, simulated sex with a boyfriend through the, <laughs> through the glass. Uh, I wanted uh, to, to isolate them even more. Mm -hmm. But yes, all the technology, the technosphere, as they called it, which keeps all this running is true to the era simply because I'm deriving it from the existing history. Ramsey is so much fun <laughs> to read because on one hand, we feel, you know, he's got to be there to have some kind of, you know, he has a, a good work ethic, you know, he's a hard worker and, and, and he has some science with him. But, I mean... What you remind us is is that no matter how scientific somebody's um, activities are, no matter if they're a scientist eight hours a day, that might mean that they're actually thinking about science maybe 30 seconds when they're talking about it. The rest of the day, they're probably thinking about sex or who they want to have sex with or who is around them, who the, interests them. As I have often said, Rick, people see me walking around and they think, wow, there he is, you know, the novelist. He's probably thinking lofty thoughts, but I'm thinking what everybody else thinks. <laughs> Kill, screw, eat. Kill, screw, eat. You know? <laughs> uh, so, nature, <laughs> red, and tooth and claw. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you don't choose your themes when you begin a career. They evolve. And I can look back and see how all these concerns are allied um, and what fascinates me is the ultimate question of what are we doing here as an animal species, which is also something a little bit more uh, in terms of our intelligence and our, our spirituality, uh, our ability to interpret the universe, which some other species don't have quite to that degree. Of course, we don't know. 
the dog, for instance, has 10,000 times the olfactory um, uh, communication of the, with the world that we do. So what is their reality like? And all these other creatures. Uh, so I'm just trying to revolve all these questions over and over, and I'm hoping to have an, uh, an answer eventually if I write another 26 books and come on your show and explain to everybody, with, with photographs, by the way, <laughs> of, uh, of God and, uh, and the, the various other planets and other creatures and so on. I'm working toward that answer. I, I'm looking, <laughs> looking forward to it. We'll be hearing from more from TC about God, the universe, and everything. TC Boyle's new book is... The Terranauts. Thank you for joining me, TC. My pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.